Hello and welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Shepherd Walwyn is a campaigning book publisher based in London, England. Our purpose is to uncover and promote new ideas to society's oldest problems. And whilst our specialty is ethical economics, something Anthony Werner, our driving force for over 40 years, has pioneered, we have branched out over the years to other related areas such as the environment and the lives and works of society's change agents. These podcasts promote ideas we're convinced can actually help us build a better society for all of us. So have a listen and be sure to share with your friends if you like them, but also tell us what you think. These are debates we all need to be part of. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the final instalment of our dialogue with Eddie Billamoria, author of the stunning 1200-page work, Unfolding Consciousness. This is the second part of our dialogue exploring book three, entitled Gazing Through the Telescope, Man is a Measure of All Things. As with all the conversations in this series, we've done our best to make this audio friendly. However, I encourage you to watch this on YouTube if you can, or at least check out the diagrams in the video when you've listened to it. We start this final conversation with an exploration, beginning with chapter 7 and the concepts of anthropogenesis and the way in which consciousness unfolds from the divine to the human. So Eddie, we, we went through the first parts of book three, which was all about the importance of, of, of symbols and you expressed different levels of, of symbolism all the way up from to the hermetic axiom, um, the law of analogy, and then the... Um, cosmogenesis the unfolding of consciousness and um we had a, a ride on cosmic planes and brought us back to terrestrial planes um, i'd just like us now to go into chapter seven which is one on anthropogenesis mm-hmm. um the unfolding of consciousness divine self to human body um, and i wonder if you could start with the term anthropogenesis um and what exactly do you mean by it um and what the methodology is that you've adopted to, you know, to to show how consciousness unfolds from the divine to the human. Well, as with cosmogenesis, uh, I explained it was really the birth and genesis uh, and the origins of cosmos. So <clears throat> anthropogenesis in the microcosm of the macrocosm, anthropogenesis is the origin and birth of man of uh, of mankind i should say as always starting from uh, the divine level and seeing how that unfolds or overflows to use our favorite term how it overflows into actuality and in this chapter you mm-hmm. use a you use a book um called the holy science right um and this is again just to demonstrate the the perennial nature of the perennial philosophy i think is that right absolutely whether from the west or the east from the east sankhya philosophy emanating directly from the vedas of course or the west the christian doctrines all great seers and sages have accessed the one universal wisdom and they have wrote about it or explained it in their own terms so if we see through the allegory and understand their symbolism we can see the absolute unity of their message and holy science was written by yukteswar giri who was the master of paramahans yogananda who wrote the famous wonderful book autobiography of a yogi 
and the preface to Holy Science was written by Walter Evans Wenz, who was a very well-known, distinguished American anthropologist and a pioneer in the study of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. And, and even and Isaac Newton makes yes, another appearance uh, as well. Absolutely. Again, to make the point and demonstrate that the greatest minds, religious, philosophical and scientific, from whatever corner of the globe, have spoken with one voice about the perennial philosophy. And we find how Sankhya philosophy here is corroborated not only by Christianity, but also what Newton says on expounding the only real substance in the universe, Sat in Sanskrit, God if you like, and why the man of the material world, we were talking about which eyes are looking through, why the man of the material world is unable to comprehend this refined divine substance, but how he may also comprehend it. Mm. And is this, is this the teachings around the causal body and the astral body and their relation to the physical? Is that, is that what you were touching on there? I'm touching on the non, non-physical, the non-visible, yeah. And uh, you, you were saying about, uh, talking earlier about uh, scientists of cutting off the bits that don't suit them. Well, let alone Newton's alchemy and theology, massive, massive volumes, Every scientist or physicist worth talking about should have read Newton's Principia. And in there you have the General Scholium, where Newton openly talks about the Supreme God. And so how is that? How do um, people explain that away? About Newton and others. Yes, about the, the General Scholium being in his in his work and being central to his his mathematical and scientific work? Oh, they explain it way by, well, the first, first explanation was after writing uh, Principia, he wrote the General Scholium when he was a bit dotty. And when it was, yes, I mean, fancy calling Newton dotty, seriously. And alchemy was just an aberration. But when it was so clearly shown that his alchemy and his theology was written, was contemporaneous with Principia, that argument no longer holds. So then you sort of quietly ignore it, you see. You mm. say something like, oh, well, that was the religion of that time. But we are now modern and we're not medieval anymore. So never mind. Never mind that Newton said he, the supreme God, is eternal and infinite. But as, and this is the point, as a blind man has no idea of colours, so have we no idea of the manner by which the all-wise God perceives and understands all things. He is utterly void of all body and bodily figure, and therefore can neither be seen nor heard nor touched. In other words, just because God is not corporeal doesn't mean we can't understand him. Or if we, if God is not corporeal, let's ignore him. <laughs> yes. Going through chapter seven, mm. I found so much in there. Um, yeah. I think we could get into it. But again, as with yeah. as with most of these chapters in your book, it would easily be a podcast or two or three on their own. Mm. Yeah, I'd be um, delighted to. Well, but you mentioned the causal and the astral bodies, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. 
Well, the causal and the uh, the causal or the karmic body is the primary vehicle of consciousness of man's immortal component. Bearing in mind that any principle needs its vehicle of expression, the causal body, which is no body as such, but is so called, um, is the primary vehicle of man's highest nature. That's why it's called the karmic body. And the astral body, again, is the generic term for the non-physical, that is the subtle bodies that contain the centers of operation for all the five senses and the organs of action. And the, in the in the book as well, or in this chapter, you also talk about the difference between relative truth yes. and real truth, between the appearance of Maya. That is um, so important. And of and yeah. of reality. And um mm -hmm. and that and, and reading I read Holy Science as well as a result of, of mm -hmm. this and and what he talks about with the senses and what and the creation of Maya. Mm -hmm. Um I found absolutely fascinating. So if there's any chance we can in in this explanation of Maya and reality and um of just look at what it is and um and what it means for us today. Well there is that famous story of the um of the great Chinese philosopher Huang Tzu, who recounts a vivid dream where he had one night where he dreamt he was a butterfly. But <clears throat> next morning, when he woke up, he said to himself, I do not know whether I'm now a butterfly dreaming that I'm a man or whether I'm now a man dreaming that about a butterfly. So that blurring and distinction was something you know that rather troubled him and there's a similar story in um, uh, through the looking glass uh, alice in wonderland good jeff said a rope in a dream is and is not so maya is loosely translated as uh, illusion but it's not that at all it's the appearance of something much deeper than what it appears to be. So the distinction between absolute knowledge and relative knowledge or between truth and real truth, no one could have expressed it better than the the, the prince of relativity theory, um, Albert Einstein. What he said is, what may be true belongs to the realm of appearance. In other words, the realm of Maya. But what is really true deals with the realities behind the appearances and then einstein comes up with this seminal observation we can only know the relative truth we can only know the relative truth the real truth is only known to the universal observer now einstein used the word universal observer of course he's not going to say god but in the most simplistic sense jonathan in the room you're sitting in you you cannot find out the full um, truth or the or the, the the image of the whole room unless you explore it from every possible angle you'd have to be a fly on the wall a fly on the ceiling you'd have to look at it from every possible angle so what you see in your own room is only a relative vision <laughs> only with total vision with universal vision would you pick up every dimension of the room you're in now and, and just 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 say again what the the einstein's words 
for what you described as God? We can only know the relative truth. The real truth is known only to the universal observer. So, so I'm thinking of, of Einstein and the and the at that time and the mm. rise of, of quantum yeah, and relativity theory, theory and, yeah. and the importance of the observer in mm. in quantum physics mm-hmm. uh, and how the observer affects the observed. Yes. Um, and there isn't and so again you can't separate one from the other because there's that interaction, there's a relationship that will be expressed through the actions of of the whole um and so i just think that that is just a wonderful description of of such a profound truth of a scientific truth and um, so the idea of a universal observer is so it's for us to discern the observer from the effects on the observed right on the effects on us Mm. um well fantastic and and just coming back again uh, jonathan that what you were saying about scientists most of them Occam's razor cutting off bits that don't suit them. If only scientists would read what their own type have written. What you've just said now, Max Planck said that, that we can never come to a total understanding without involving the human being because we are part of what we are trying to understand. Exactly as you said, these great scientists have said it, but their lesser underlings have completely ignored their philosophical thought. This is a monster chapter um, <laughs> that we've got. It's just, I was laughing when I was going off, just looking at it now and just how much there is in this chapter, mm. um, how many layers there are to it. But you also, one thing I would like to draw out in this one is, mm-hmm. is the work of, of Blavatsky um oh, yes. and esoteric instructions and the inner group teachings mm-hmm. um i just wonder is there any way that we can we can touch on these areas and give insights to the listeners and viewers in a way that doesn't utterly overwhelm them with all the the wisdom that's in the right. in that particular well, chapter the inner group teachings really elaborate amplify and to some extent correct her earlier instructions not because the earlier ones were incorrect but because what was given out in the inner group was too private and too sacred just to be disseminated Mm. and could be so easily misunderstood so again what she has shown with more detail is how man has evolved by descent from spirit not ascent from matter and all things have uh, their origins in spirit and evolution has um, always begun from the above and worked downwards and uh, there is a wonderful diagram showing the the macrocosm and the two microcosms the the divine consciousness the archetypal and the physical anything we make on earth has the same process if you want to design whatever a new type of motor car you have to have a vision and then you have to have a blueprint and then the blueprint must be converted into material and shape and form 
for people to appreciate of the, you know it's like well the, you know the, the value of of this is to recognize that you began as a you began as spirit and you'll return to that yeah um, and so in that sense of, of of rooting in that knowing of <clears throat> of i am spirit <clears throat> and i'm expressing myself or my, spirit's expressing itself physically through through my body mm-hmm. um and then it's like, so what then right and it's like well then connect with with the spirit and and acknowledge that, that you're not you know whilst you have your feet on the ground that's not where you belong mm. um and 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 within this then what we also bring in as well is, is the next chapter you move into mm. um from the external sensation to so the internal experience yeah. and we're really yeah. coming in now and with yeah. and these next chapters are the cult the the the, the 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 coming back to chapter one of book one of mm. the importance of knowing yourself and the importance of experience aren't we really mm. Mm. um and i know it was it's, it might seem like a long time ago for for listeners and it certainly feels that from a journey point of view it certainly is um but i just wonder if we could look at this the whole area in chapter eight around the the subjective perception of a of an objective universe mm-hmm. um and yeah would that be all right yeah of course um, and so you start with the schrodinger mind sensation problem right identifying uh specific issues um and our impediments to understanding yeah um can i just briefly explain the schrodinger mind sensation yes, problem that that's my uh, appellation actually schrodinger in his wonderful book what is life and as i said earlier these books are not hidden away in an archive they're totally accessible but scientists don't bother when it comes to philosophical thinking that's not physics chemistry material and schrodinger said i'm very i'm I'm paraphrasing the scientific view is very deficient science can tell us in great detail how the waves of compression and rarefaction strike our eardrums and then a neurological process goes to the brain but why 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 does an old song move us to tears and i would say why is it that when i listen to (laughs) muzak i want to do that that experience as schrodinger said science is ghastly silent his words ghastly silent but science often tries to um, explain these things, but they're so uh, silly that we're not inclined to take them seriously. Explaining away, in other words. And then Schrodinger says, and what about the greatest questions we ask? Who am I? Where am I? Where, where am I going? Where is God? Science has no answer. So the, the mind sensation problem is showing a hitting on the problem. How is it that I can hear a sound, but that sound brings tears to my eyes, even though it's airwaves? That is his conundrum. And mainstream science is completely obsessed with the idea that the brain produces consciousness or generates consciousness, which is why I call that a pseudoscience, that idea. So they're looking for a neurological or mechanistic explanation without ever questioning that the neurology and brain are instruments and not the producers of consciousness. And can I show you, if I may, a very meaningful slide? 
again from the greatest scientist and philosopher. And I insist on saying that because people can't rubbish it then. Mm. So can you see this? Now, the great neurologist Sir Francis Walsh said that, of course, the soul needs a human person or it needs some mechanism to collect its experience and distribute it, the distributing, integrating mechanism. But it's quite childish to identify the instrument with its user. And this, Jonathan, I've thought about it no end. This is the central cause of the confusion in science, identifying childishly the instrument with its user. So, as Peter Leggett said, Vice-Chancellor of Surrey University, Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, Fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society, he puts it very simply. The pianist needs a piano, the performer needs an instrument, but you don't conflate the two, because if you do, as Brunton said, then the violin secretes music on its own, never mind the violinist. So what you're, what you're, what you're establishing there, so, so Leggett's saying that um, we've got a, a pianist and the piano. Yes. And the mind corresponds to the pianist mm -hmm. and the brain to the piano. Mm -hmm. And if either pianist or piano are inadequate, so will yeah. be the music. Yeah. If either mind or brain is inadequate, so will be the person. Yeah. And Paul Brunton then goes on and says, if blood, bone and flesh of the human brain secrete thought, Mm. Then the wooden strings of a violin secrete mm. music, yeah. never mind the violinist. Yeah, I I'm saying that, hence square brackets. And there's a, a lovely story of the great violinist Yosha Heifetz, who arrived in Tel Aviv, and the taxi driver said, Oh, Mr. Heifetz, your violin produces such beautiful sounds. And Heifetz, I believe the story goes, he actually took his violin out and tapped it. Really? Does it produce lovely sounds? What about the violinist? You see, it's the same thing. All those years ago in the last century, I put this slide up earlier, but it's so meaningful. Um, William James identified three kinds of functional dependence on the brain. Productive, releasing, transmissive. Productive in the sense that steam is produced by a kettle. Electricity is produced by the hydroelectric uh, waterfall. Releasing is not producing, it is releasing, permissive. The crossbow releases the arrow, the crossbow doesn't produce it. And the third functional dependence is transmissive. And there he quotes the lovely um, a couplet from uh, Shelley that life like a dome of many colored glass stains the white radiance of eternity so there is this analogy between light and life as a prism splits light white light into its colors our brain so to speak splits what is essentially one radiance into all of these qualities that we identify with. So that being the case, 
my claim is not in this chapter and the others because I'm so clever at having discovered what a whole galaxy of scientists have not, but really that I've distilled the deepest wisdom from the legendary sages and philosophers who have understood and solved this problem. And I've really just put it together. Just when we're looking at the at the meaning of Maya, because I know in the in um in the previous chapter when you were talking about the the way in which Maya was seen as the the hiding of the light mm-hmm. of our of our spiritual nature or our spirit, and that to to uncover or to to get beyond Maya is to actually to return to the light or to to uncover that light. Is that correct? Um, I wouldn't so much call it hiding as mistaking its appearance for its true nature Mm. in that sense hiding the true nature of it yeah but maya is central it's the creative force i mean we couldn't visualize or create something without maya it's the power of visualization the power of coming into being but then that spins a sort of web of glamour around us where we think that what we've spun what we appear what our appearances are is what there really is and nothing more but the question that mainstream science asks all the time how does the brain generate consciousness i would say are they asking the right question because coming back to einstein he once said that if he had only one hour to solve a problem on which his whole life depended, he would spend 55 minutes asking the right question and then only five minutes solving it, answering it. So my answer to these scientists is that they're not asking the right question. When they say, how does the brain generate consciousness this presupposes in the first place that the brain does and they just don't know how but does the brain generate consciousness it doesn't as i've shown you in those slides and the one with william james so there are three erroneous assumptions they make and you did mention that earlier if you'd like me just to touch on that the Mm. three assumptions that are so completely erroneous is the firstly the relation between the senses and the mind where neuroscience adamantly maintains that the senses the physical senses are the basic reality and mind is a product of the senses and is therefore subordinate to the sense organs whereas in fact it's completely the other way around the mind works through the instrumentality of the brain and sense organs and there is the lovely um, analogy with the queen bee and the other bees in the hive the queen bee is the mind the other bees that go out into the world are the body brain and senses that are subordinate to the mind so that's the first one the first assumption the second 
erroneous assumption is a very limited outlook on the whole constitution of man, which need I hardly say, as far as they're concerned, is only body, physical body. And they're completely resistant to blending physics with metaphysics, and so investigating the whole constitution of man, not just his physical counterpart. And the third one is the one that Sir Francis Walsh pointed out, the failure to distinguish consciousness from its vehicles, its bodies of expression. The assumption that the vehicle, the brain, is the mechanism considered to produce thought, rather like the violin produces music without the violinist. Well, to carry on, it, the, mm. the, the violin manifests the violinist mm. to produce its own music. Mm -hmm. That's basically what we're saying. If, if we're saying that the brain generates consciousness, mm. then the brain generates the violinist to play the violin. I wouldn't say generates, it conditions consciousness, because if Yehudi Menuhin or Heifetz were to play a cheap fiddle or a Stradivarius, the violin, i.e. brain, would certainly produce a different sound. Sure. It would condition the violinist. Oh, but it, and it and constrains it or, or frees it. But it, I'm saying if yeah, I was following yeah. the, the idea that the brain produces consciousness, mm -hmm. then if we have the analogy of the violin and the violinist, yeah. and it's the violin creates a violinist to play it, which is absolutely, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yes, and so it begins. Not only do we have the, you know, the violinist, but it's, it's also just using. Okay, so and also, I guess, you know, the question for ourselves would be, what's the quality of my brain? Am I a, you know, a, a, a ten pound fiddle, or am I a as my brain and my my and my body a Stradivarius? I've got um, a lovely quotation on that very one. <laughs> that mortal man, is the physical instrument and his thoughts and ideas are played through his mind and body but whether we are a cheap crack fiddle or a Stradivarius there is still the Paganini who stands behind us yeah beautiful um, is there anything that we can we can touch on in chapter eight that we haven't already? I mean, there's again just so many, so many things we haven't mentioned: vitalism and and nerve ethesis. We haven't measured yeah. the cosmic elements. I've spoken right. about those, and the three mental currents that exist in each person. Mm. Um, well, the three mental currents—that's uh, a shorter one. <laughs> the first is really the entirely subjective activity of one's own mind as in fantasy or daydreaming without any contact with the external world the second uh, most uh, common one is the projection of mental images from one mind to another as in thought transference and telepathy the third one is the activity of divine mind on ins on on individual mind whether through the instrumentality of the senses or in profound meditation. Yes. And, and with this then moves us into then 
a deeper exploration of divine forces in the human mm -hmm. being. Mm -hmm. And in this one is, is exciting that it's titled The Awakening of Latent Faculties and Powers mm -hmm. of Consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, again, just as we're manifesting the spirit into the into the physical. Yes. Um, and just exploring that. How do we. Uh, how should we start? Um, well, Always uh, starting from as below so above <laughs> again in order to make anything we first need the raw material then we need to shape it and give it a form and then to inhabit it so to build a house we need the bricks and mortar but bricks and mortar are not a house we got to have a plan and shape it but then it's only a house it becomes a home when you move into it so the three divine forces brahma vishnu and mahesha are to do with just those three aspects of creation creating the raw material the evolution of the vehicles and the expression of reality and you can certainly relate that to the christian trinity though i'm sure a lot of christians wouldn't like that when you quote in holy science and what, mm. what comes out in that book is just the extraordinary nature the rereading of the bible right um, absolutely mind-blowing of um yeah. of what of linking it to other ancient ancient right. insights mm -hmm. and wisdom yeah um so we've and got the there for the um three divine forces the collector word is the logos of course which is ishvara in sanskrit or the manifested deity the manifested deity known as ishvara um is the outward expression or effect of the cause which is ever concealed mm. what's the role then of divine forces um in the makeup of of the human being the role of the divine forces is so that you can live and exist so take the human being the as a baby if you cut your finger it's well very well known children heal very fast the creative force is very much to the fore but the regenerative the destructive which is not the right word but the ending the the ending the destructive force of shiva is also present otherwise that child would never ultimately die there is also that which preserves life and the three forces are mostly in balance around middle age Towards the end of your life, even on your last day, I would maintain if you cut yourself, there's going to be some healing, some healing. But the creative force of Brahma, which is so prevalent as a baby, is virtually extinct, but not entirely. But the regenerative, destructive force of Shiva is now in the ascendant so that you may be taken away physically and regenerate hmm. so all of those three forces are always operating but in different proportions at different stages it's well known that when when you break your bones your hair stops growing your nails stop growing because the, the great wisdom of the body knows where to put its vitality the hair is not so important <laughs> Yeah, and 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 when you when you become stressed, then um, things yeah, can start the to, things can start to fall off, right? Nails can even you know hair falls really? out. 
it goes even further than you know just in a, in a way of the system protecting itself of, of focusing yeah. on the most yeah. important survival yeah. aspects yeah um, so so one of those three divine forces has gained the ascendancy yes depending on the situation but all three are always there on vitalism i think there is that wonderful quote by the french nobel physicist showing what is there in the blood that is simply cannot be produced by ordinary chemicals and physics and chemistry in other words life is more than just chemistry and uh, alexis carroll the french surgeon and um, biologist awarded the nobel prize he compared the amount of liquid needed to keep artificially alive a certain amount of live tissue compared with the amount of blood you'd need to keep that live tissue and eliminate the waste products and he said that if all the tissues of the human body were treated in this way it would take 45,000 gallons of circulating fluid to keep these tissues alive from being poisoned in a few days by their own waste products. Within the living organism, the human body, the blood achieves the same task with one and a half gallons. What's that telling us? Astrologically, blood, iron, planet Mars, prana, sun, they all come together in a whole body of wisdom connected with the human being and much more of course now i mean you mentioned vitalism there and it is yeah. it is it is still a a a, a controversial topic oh, yeah. right yeah. Um, mm. could you just explain to the listeners if they haven't if what vitalism is what the criticisms have been of it from the um of people as eminent as francis crick yeah francis um, crick but also yeah. so so what is it why has it been criticized but why do you regard vitalism as as being so important because it presents an organizing field francis crick he is i think quoted as saying that um, in his paper with uh, watson and um, wilkins the other two are hardly ever mentioned he now feels that he has discovered the structure of dna which has delivered a blow to vitalism life is just chemistry but vitalism for me is a is an older statement of rupert sheldrake's morphogenetic field i'm not saying they're the same thing but we're talking of an organizing field as a template Hmm. And that um, is part of the nervous organization, which uh, the great scientist <laughs> Richardson, he called the vital principle, which he called the nervous ether, with its fountainhead in the sun. Hmm. And again, I come back to the great Newton at the end of the General <laughs> Sholium, he talks about a certain most subtle spirit which pervades and lies hidden in all gross bodies by the force and action of which all sensation is excited and the members of animal bodies move at the command of the will so 
this nervous ether vitalism, all generic terms for this subtle spirit, so to speak, this subtle fluid gas that pervades the nervous system and is responsible for its power to act on will. Do you know, I just had a thought there, Eddie, just about, um, so in economics, for example, um, mm -hmm. we've, got, we've got a lot of problems. Um, but, um, and there's a, if you actually, what we're, our assertion is, in, with its shepherd Warwin is, mm -hmm. is that there's actually there's, there are organizing principles that we've, that were neglected. So for example, Adam Smith, um, probably the most influential English speaking economist, mm -hmm. um, some of his stuff is now, is still used, mm -hmm. but it's without the more important work of, it, of his theory of moral sentiment. Yes. And the, the way in which you describe the organizing principles of of that is it so for example so if, if you and i both act in our own best interest right we just pursue our own interest which is which is a fundamental tenet of modern economic theory mm. but mm. it's now stripped of the organizing principle that that i am in sympathy with you and you are in sympathy with me meaning that you're not going to do something that would harm me because that would morally that would hurt you because you mm. couldn't stand mm. that because we're you know we're in a community and that was the, the the fundamental principle that 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 Smith based his economic philosophy. That was a the economics was a was a step down from the theory of moral sentiments, and um, and yet we're missing that organizing principle. It means that then we've just got agents running around doing their own thing and damaging others, and it's because there isn't the organizing principle to the whole. Mm. You know, and it just seemed to that that seemed analogous to what you were saying there. That's a very good uh, example, not just an analogy, an example from economics. <clears throat> it would be a bit like being in a traffic jam and we all do our own thing and bang into each other to get ahead. Whereas if we considered the whole, the organizing whole, if we all drove with consideration, the whole system would improve. Mm. And if the system improves, we must, because we are part of it. Yeah, we mentioned about um, consciousness and and the brain and, mm. um, and everything else. And, and one of the modern manifestations of that, especially with Imperial College, yeah. um, yes, is the yes. use of psychedelics um, yes. to raise consciousness. Mm. Um, and yet you warn us about the dangers of I uh, potentially resorting most, to... It's the most foolish thing one can do. What are your overall feelings about using drugs to elevate consciousness? Right. I would say, firstly, anything where you achieve any elevation, you do through your own, you deserve it through your own effort. I don't mean ego. If a drug elevates consciousness, let's look at it this way. If I burst into a bank, well, you don't do that now, it's cyber attacks anyway. <laughs> if I burst into a bank and rob a million, I've not gained a million. I would love to play the piano at the Royal Festival Hall. That would be an absolute dream to give a recital. I'm not qualified. I could, when someone's playing, throw him off the stool and sit on the piano and play. Am I playing in the Royal Festival Hall or am I not? So I've not deserved it. So the, the, the ultimate 
of spiritual evolution, of elevating consciousness, to think you can take a drug and um, raise a consciousness is, as far as I'm concerned, a complete oxymoron. Now, the reason is this. It's far more than just um, a philosophical talk. The action of drugs is to displace the body from its etheric and astral counterparts. And therefore, it renders us open and prey to all sorts of unseen and multitudinous influences, which is why people have a good trip or a bad trip. You're exposing yourself to the elementals. And more often than not, a harmful elemental. The action of the drug is to loosen or tear holes in the etheric web, the protection of the etheric double that inhibits these harmful influences entering our physical body. So taking drugs, Mexican mushrooms, hashish or LSD, will or may give you glimpses, may give you signs or give you hints. But ultimately, the interior deterioration is absolutely guaranteed. Mm. And I don't mean drugs for strictly medical psychiatric purposes. That's quite different. There is this, Jonathan, this idea, I can get what I like when I want it for as little cost and I want it now. Drugs, let's do it. And there's no thinking about, do I deserve it? Have I earned it? Am I qualified? Am I mentally robust? Is my emotional nature centered? Hmm. Well, do you know, certainly, so there's, there's some things there from a, from a performance point of view, right? Let's just say I was coaching you um, and you said, John, one of my life's ambitions is to play at the, the Royal hmm. Festival Hall. And, and let's just say I had a friend who was doing a concert there. Mm -hmm. And I said, OK, Eddie, so one of the things I want you to do, I want you to be utterly inspired by that vision and I want you to experience it. And so, so we could use imagination as a way of doing that. You're visualizing yourself at the Royal Festival Hall. Um, but what I could then also do is say, look, I can get you backstage. So so we can go backstage and we're going to watch my friend play on the on the stage. Um, and I want you to stand in the wings and imagine you're about to walk on stage mm. and feel everything, all the excitement you're hearing, the, the audience is settling and you're prepared. And yeah. I want you to feel that. Right. Um, and so we do that. Right. Imagine. Can you imagine that? Easily. Right. And sorry to interrupt. No. You've used a very important word. Imagine that is the power of Maya. Right. OK. So, so yeah, then now so we're still backstage right mm -hmm. and then and then the curtain opens and we see and my friend um plays and you're inspired by that yeah. and then the, my friend on stage says oh ladies and gentlemen i have a new friend backstage and he just wants to he's he's preparing to play at the royal festival hall and i know it can be nerve-wracking to do that would you be okay if he played a couple of minutes right now and so he invites you on stage and then you do a two or three minute um, recital just to experience it. Right. And the crowd are very, are very good. Oh, Eddie, that's very good. Very good. Please keep going because we'd like to see your concert. Right. Mm. So so that in and of itself 
I would say, so we've not, you've not knocked my friend off the stool. No. You've been invited on stage. And so you've done it within the context and the, and the yeah. audience are okay with that and everything else. So I just wonder what is what would be wrong in a, in and of that experience? Nothing at all. But I wouldn't be invited <laughs> by the concert agents to give a, a two-hour recital. <laughs> oh, no. So then the question then is, so that for me is, okay, Eddie, what now? So you come off stage and it's like, Eddie, how was that? What was that experience like? You were in front of 2,000 people. Um, are you now more inspired to, fi to find your way back there yourself? Right. I know where you're getting right. at. Yes, I, I would say that would be the best single use of a drug. It's given you that taste. It's given you that glimpse. But your friend backstage is not going to be doing that every day of his life. He's going to be saying, now you study, now you practice six hours a day. I've given you a taste and you deserved it because you were so keen. But now you get on with it. Yes, and do the work and and yeah. find your way, find your own way back, right? Yeah. And I think that's a, and I and totally get the the idea of using yeah. these things because the thing that really stands out for me there is when you were talking about the you know being open to negative forces and mm. and 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 the danger of a bad trip if if people do these things unsupervised mm -hmm. and unsupported, which I think is what I really like about the psychedelic research, which is mm. the very ecological in terms of safety to the extent of of, of holding back the experience right of being you know unnecessarily safe in mm. inverted commas mm. um and the importance of of being in you know so the importance of having others with you and 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 making sure that you stay safe having a support structure yes. which is so important not just doing it as a diy yeah and 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 to to not to not confuse the taste of with you being a, a yeah. royal festival hall pianist because yeah. it was a it was yeah. kind of like if you remember i mean you know that that you know make a wish foundation stuff and and it's like well a wish has come true but it's not true because it isn't real in a sense mm. you've not made it real mm. you've yeah. not manifested it in mm. the in the world so we've talked about um the dangers of taking a shortcut towards the awakening of latent faculties such as the use of the inappropriate use of psychedelics um what ecological ways would you encourage for someone to to awaken latent faculties eddie right there are wonderful safe methods recommended uh, by modern sages the meditations on the mystery of the breath the heart and the eye and all of that of course uh, underpinned by constant self-inquiry and mental discipline you also talk about the the, the real faculty of intuition and what right. that really is um, which i thought was was a really wonderful it's only only brief but um and you quote one author of intuition gives us the idea of the whole and the intellect analysis of parts mm. and i'm just wondering if there's anything else you, you can share with the with the viewers on so we've got in controlled use of of psychedelics um and and well, you, you also i mean you talk about you know steiner and 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 goethe's um mm -hmm. warnings about the dangers of premature entrance into the higher worlds and yes you use our analogy of the of the royal festival hall it could be that you find your way on and it goes badly on stage 
Yeah, and, and you're you get, a bag of nerves and you make a fool of yourself. And you get booed <laughs> off and it's like, yeah. bloody Eddie Bilamore, we're not going to go see him again. No. <laughs> <laughs> but talking of intuition, I mentioned uh, Isaac Newton and uh, Srinivasa and Ramanujan as supreme examples of um, being completely self-taught, autodidactic. Very different cultures, very different um, religious faiths, but that is secondary. They were both very deeply religious and universal in their outlook. Mm. And neither of them came from a particularly intellectual or mathematically inclined family. It doesn't mean, mean the family wasn't intelligent, but it wasn't educated in that sense. So and intuition is tuition from within, self-taught, autodidactic. You said I, I was having a go at Darwin. Um, <laughs> no, it's more the uh, Darwin's poodles, so to speak. One of Darwin's famous sayings needs to be taken more seriously, which is we have more confidence in our ignorance than in what we know. So, in other words, he said, ignorance begets more confidence than our knowledge. Mm. Darwin was good medicine for the religious superstition of his day. But um, modern evolutionary science only looks at evolution purely from the standpoint of biological evolution. And they only look at the changing of form. They're not aware of the indwelling consciousness or the impulse behind that change of form. So e evolution means a turning outward. It doesn't mean piling one brick on top of another. It's really an opening up of innate faculties. And involution is the reverse process, a rolling inwards. And the two always go together. So when matter evolves, it is turning out its spiritual possibilities. When spirit involves, it gets more and more congealed in itself. It involves. And then there's also the word devolution, which is dropping from a one height to a lower height. You mentioned evolution of kingdoms of nature. Yes. Um, and you provide some quotes from the East and the West in that. Yes. What, what's, what are you driving at there in that part of the book? What I'm driving at as the whole of nature always wants to march to a higher stage of itself, coming ever closer and closer to its ultimate purpose and its origins. So which is why the stone dies in order to become a plant which dies in order to become an animal, similarly to become a human and then to become superhuman. So there is always this ongoing march. Nothing so, is ever static. And so if we appear to be going backwards, then we've got something wrong, I guess. Unless we go backwards to go upwards, <laughs> so to speak. Yes, definitely. Yes, we are regressing if we're going backwards. Yeah. But well, you know, and, and the, I mean, I, I don't know if we, we're getting, we're, we're focusing too much on a theory that's 
that was useful as you said the, the you know darwin's darwin's approach and, and very useful and yes. wallace's stuff as well was was extremely useful at the time and yet we're holding there's a lot of people around those theories that hold them in place right um what um, what would and you talk in in the in the chapter about some of the legitimate criticisms of mm. of, the, yes. of the poodles of darwin's of what people have mm. not not the theory itself but the way in which it's not it's not taken they've, on and taken into account yeah, new new discoveries they've converted the theory into an ideology and the criticisms come from people like thomas nagel a professor at uh, new york university amit goswami uh, oregon uh, brian goodwin who said that evolution on its own is far too weak a force and most of all from alfred russell wallace who was a great champion of darwin but so its limitations he, he said that the explosion of mathematical knowledge can't be explained purely on the basis of natural selection mm. so that's a part of the story but it's not the whole story and so the real principle of evolution as understood in occult science is to show that all life is in various stages of becoming being and becoming and you, you end this chapter with the state of enlightenment and the quality of genius. Mm. It's interesting, Jonathan, how scientists grapple with this whole idea of trying to avoid divinity. And it's either blind chance, absolute blind chance, you know. Well, forget that. Then there's this stupid thousand monkey or million monkey syndrome. But I say even if a million monkeys could type even a word of Shakespeare, let alone all the sonnets, they would not be typing Shakespeare. They would only be typing words. So if in a state of drunken stupor I typed T-O-B-E-N-O-T-T-O-B-E, -E, I would not understand to be or not to be. I would just be typing words. So even the stupid million monkey or whatever, infant monkey syndrome, would only be typing words, not the thought and the consciousness behind it. The most promising is the multiverse, as I mentioned, and the fourth is the anthropic principle, all of which both of those are nudging science quite significantly towards the perennial philosophy as indeed quantum physics has done which is the greatest contribution of science to the perennial philosophy mm. so it's not as Irvin laszlo said it's not evolution or design it's design for evolution are there any parts of um occult science that, that they provide to this jigsaw of of scientific insights that you'd like to touch on that science just hasn't um, fathomed in it. Oh, overall, the collective science hasn't fathomed, even if individual scientists have. On evolution, well, the secret doctrine goes into it in great depth, but it's a massive, massive thing to chew. The most useful is the one creative evolution by um, Amit Goswami, where he talks a physicist's resolution, resolution between Darwinism and intelligent design and he talks very eloquently about the whole field of quantum physics and consciousness uh, 
that would be a, a very good entree. The title of the final chapter of the book is Summary of the Theme, Consciousness is an Element. And why is it an element? Because an element is something that is completely irreducible. As in physical chemistry, we have the elements. Ultimately, consciousness is irreducible. And it's from that that everything else is built, from the elements that... Or emanated, yeah, yeah. Great. Um, So you you say in this um, book that, that having, based on this... And you talk about the um, the Janus or the Janus faces of science. Yes. Um, yeah. What do you mean by by that? And and where are the two faces pointing? Well, the 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 dark Janus face. There's no uh, shortage of examples of that. Um, one can think of the whole question of transhumanism, trying to use genetic material and microchips and stuff like that to enhance immortality as they see it. The other one, a recent one, is the Neuralink um, organization founded, I think, by Elon Musk to um, experiment first on monkeys, planting chips in their brains and um, to see how that that can enhance uh, and supposedly provide some insight into the human brain operates. Uh, Ghastly experiments on animals, um, all in the name of science, but uh, really to satisfy the egos of scientists. And genetically modifying materials and fooling around with the basic stuff of our physical existence with little understanding of the consequences. There's also absolutely wonderful stuff, of course. <laughs> the dark Janus face is pointing that way, and the, the bright face is, is, is pointing upwards. It's showing us uh, near-death experiences, for example, showing the continuity of consciousness, universal mind, morphogenetic fields, And um, Brian Josephson, who comes or came up with this incredible insight that physics needs agents, as he put it, and agents are the cause of physics. Now, what does he mean by agents? I'm suggesting he's alluding to the non-physical energy entities, which I call the elementals, who are all part and parcel of nature's laboratory. Mm. It's something that that's becoming more and more important in um, in psychology and in mm. performance, and the importance of of agency, yes, or, and of recognizing how I, it's recognizing yourself as an agent mm. um, in the situation. And if you're not, then to find ways to become um, a agent. more powerful agent, mm-hmm. so that you can start to sh- start to shape things. Um, and yeah, this, yeah. I mean, chapter 11, it could almost be if you, you could extend that a little bit and it would mm-hmm. be a book in and of itself, wouldn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you so you we're summarizing, we're looking at the, the, the challenge of the material, which was the first part of book one. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at the, but also looking at the positive aspects of science yes, most certainly. Um, and its contribution 
but also framing it and recognizing its limitations of what it can and can't do yeah um, and that it isn't it isn't a limitation of science to have limitations it's just the nature of science to have limitations in that area yeah, yeah. um and then we're moving into the the whole area around the you know the the importance of the of the spiritual and mm. uh, but i've also emphasized the spiritual has a dark face as well in no uncertain terms go on the the glamour the false prophets the obsession with having starry-eyed um, disciples sitting around you wanting power and control all of that that's no, also and a I great guess, casualty i guess again it's like the, the spiritual master who who surrenders their own the value of their own experience mm, mm. for the experience of being a guru yeah um and they just stop producing or stop contributing anything right because mm. they're no longer connected to the wisdom that got them to the position of guru yes um it's whether that was a result of psychedelics or just the you know the unearned rewards that they get i know i've got friends of you know eastern friends tend to tend to hold gurus in a in a better in a safer regard than westerners they do because... westerners you know they can surrender everything but there's always a an element of independence in the eastern approach to a guru that i found and when mm. um we're interacting with people so any any what what summary can we make when you're looking at your whole work as typified mm. and exemplified in in this amazing chapter of mm. consciousness is an element um what are the conclusions that you'd like to to draw together to summarize the the three books that's present in the final chapter i would say firstly it is so important always to hold a balance between intellect and devotion always to keep those two going. obviously some subjects will need more one than the other but you mentioned the guru and the uh, the, the eastern approach <laughs> devotion is wonderful but it can soon turn into hero worship. It can soon turn into sheer gullibility and delusion. To counter that, you need a sharp intellect to pare away all the dross and to bring you back to balance. Now, the intellect on its own, don't we know? The arrogance, the self-importance, wanting control, that can be mitigated to a great extent by the humility that comes from the devotional approach so depending on your own internal nature one or other will predominate and if you're a man of action you'll be a man of action that's why in the Bhagavad gita there are the three great yogas the yoga of the mind the yoga of the heart and the yoga of action bhakti jnana and karma so that's one thing I'd say, but it's most important, I think, always to remember that our evolutionary journey can't be defined, but we can describe it any more than we can define a journey. We can experience it. And our body, our body is the path, so to speak, we travel on, and consciousness is the traveler 
on that never-ending journey of evolution. But the greatest discovery of all for me is not the outer one of going to new galaxies and is there life on Mars? Was there water on Venus? All that. That's easy, in a sense. The greatest discovery for me is the inner journey. The inner journey to discover who we truly are. And that's the most difficult, but yet the most important of all discoveries. Mm, I, I guess what you're saying there is for us to reconnect with the, the universal observer. Yeah. Um, and, yes. to, and by going okay, inwards, but, mm. you know, recognizing that, you know, the, the vision or the illusion in front of us, mm. we can focus on what's true in through our experience. Mm. And that then leads us back to the internal, the, the, the divinity of which we're a part and an expression. Yeah. Of which we're a part. And therefore, when we know that, we know everyone else because they are a part. Mm. Yeah. And this ghastly thing that's going on in the world where people are focused on my country, my this, my that, the consciousness is so isolated and so sectarian without any thought that we belong to one Earth and one planet. See, at the heart of every atom of every universe, there is spirit, which is completely deathless and divine and any system or any person that denies that will ultimately never last whether it's an individual or whether it's an atheistic system or communist system that denies the inner divinity it must fall ultimately but, you know, and, and Eddie, on this, I just wonder if we could if we could finish with the um, destiny, meaning and purpose. Where I've quoted the uh, thing from Beethoven's last quartet. Yes. Yes. Mm. So wondrously. I, I just wonder if we could if you could share with the listeners on on what you say about about how destiny, meaning and purpose applies to the unfolding of consciousness. The destiny is meaning and purpose. They're all to discover who we truly are. If we think of a sportsman. First, he had a wonderful, supple, muscular body, and he enjoyed his time in sport. Then when he grows old to the age of 100, he can't run around like that. He has to cast off his outworn body and take on new vehicles so that his lifelong love, his destiny, can express through new vehicles of consciousness so meaning purpose and destiny are all part and parcel of the same movement of consciousness towards its ultimate goal which really was its origin so as we cast off our physical clothes as we cast off our outworn bodies we seek new bodies to fulfill that inner drive you look at the like the the way in which that's that idea mm. is now being turned into physical mm. aspects of, mm. of of striving for physical immortality yes. or computerized yeah. immortality is to miss the whole point it is missing the whole point 
And I think it is absolutely hideous because vast amounts of money are being spent. It's going on now as we speak. Um, preserving people in liquid nitrogen is a, is a strong movement. There is a fellow at Oxford University. When I fellow, I don't mean a bloke. I mean a fellow of, of Oxford College. Yes. Openly promulgating this idea of transhumanism fixated on this idea of physical immortality but but let me put it this way that with all this darkness and blindness there has to be a hidden purpose behind that nature always has a hidden purpose and that hidden purpose is to find the hidden purpose in all things so as Kyle Gibran put it so beautifully that the, the veil that covers your eyes and the clay that blocks your ears, ultimately the veil will have to be torn by the same hands that wove it and the clay that blocks your ears will have to be unblocked by the same hands that needed the clay. But in that moment, you will not curse the darkness or the deafness because how would you know? You would not deplore it because then when you finally hear and see, you will know the hidden purpose in all things. And then you would bless the darkness as you would bless the light. Mm. Yes. And it brings us, it brings us again, just the whole purpose of the, of all the work is to return home, isn't it? Mm. And to, and to return to our original state. Yes, absolutely, to return to our home. Because Eddie, we are homesick. <laughs> Eddie, this is, yes, I can certainly relate to that. Um, Eddie, <laughs> you've produced a truly you, remarkable <laughs> work. I, I am leaving questions unanswered. No, but um, no, I think that the listeners, I think what we've got to do is encourage listeners to get the books, read them, and then we all meet again in a year or so when they've read and digested the books mm. and we can talk again on the on just applying because it's I mean, of all the works I've, I've, I've lucky enough to to speak with the authors about. I think mm. your work has changed me the most. Um, and it, it's truly yeah. extraordinary and in ways, Eddie, as well, that are only just unfolding. Um, and so I will, I will remember, I mean, I am remembering that this isn't, an, you know, this is a verb of your, your book is a verb. It is not a noun. Not a noun. <laughs> and, uh, just going through us, just going through the book again in our conversation, thinking, oh my goodness, there was this and there's that. And there's, you know, the suppressed archeological evidence of Vedic doctrine. Mm. And we've got amazing diagrams linking, you know, Blavatsky with ancient work and the holy mm. science. And so just amazing stuff, Eddie. So, so on behalf of, of Shepherd Walwyn and also of, of myself, um, thank you for the decades of, of work that you've done to express, to be expressed in these, in these series of books. Jonathan, I'm very humbled with your words. Thank you so much. And I'm deeply grateful to Shepherd Walwyn and everyone who helped to make this come to be, because I've said on quite a few occasions that there were some amazing synchronicities that all had to happen. 
for these four volumes to be produced. And um, I, I don't think it was coincidence. I think it was the right time. Mm. So I'm very deeply grateful to Shepard Walwyn for providing the uh, the vehicle in terms of the divine forces <laughs> so that the impulse could manifest in the physical world. Mm. Thank you for joining us on this series of conversations with Edibilla Moria to celebrate and to introduce his masterpiece, Unfolding Consciousness. Now, I hope as a Shepherd Walwyn podcast listener, you'll agree that as a publisher, we're committed to encouraging different voices and perspectives, whether that's in the economic realm with Phil Anderson and Fred Harrison and John Butler in spiritual practice. And it's our conviction that Eddie's work, as I hope you've experienced in this series, has the potential to change the dialogue in so many areas. Most significantly, perhaps, in the interaction between science and spirituality and a reappraisal and reintroduction of our ancient wisdom traditions, the perennial philosophy, into our discourse on how to add meaning to our existence. And if you've listened to this series of conversations with Eddie, then I hope you feel ready to make the investment in his magnus opus. It's taken six months to complete these recordings, and I think I'm on the third or fourth reading of each of the books, and I still feel like I'm reading them for the first time, as there's so much new wisdom to consider on each successive reading. And my conviction is, is that even if you have much more awareness with the perennial philosophy than I have, you'll have a similar experience of newness. So for the last time with Eddie at least, thank you for listening to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast. Be sure to connect with us at shepherdwalwyn.com and join our mailing list for updates and special offers. And if you feel it's appropriate, give us a like wherever you get your podcasts and also on YouTube. It's surprisingly helpful for getting the message out. So until next time, keep reading.